Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this uh, this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, your your word is it's, it's interesting tonight. And it's kind of like an in-between set of verses. And we were thankful for uh, the imagery you give in, the, in these verses, Lord, and for how it challenges us. And uh, I pray that we're all challenged tonight, that we, we take this text at face value and let it work on our hearts. And I just pray that it'll be a fruitful time in your word and that it would be just good to get to know you even more, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. Settings, settings are good. All right, so we are in, uh, we ended last week with verse 15 of chapter 5, and verse 15 is like a transition verse. It kind of fits at the end of chapter 5, but it's also a good opener for chapter 6, and so it's included tonight. We are in chapter 5, verse 15 to chapter 6, verse 6. I wanted to kind of paint the book of Hosea for you. Uh, you'll see that at the top of the page there, kind of in, in, if, you, if you paint with broad paintbrush strokes. What is God communicating here? And the first part is, is, and this is not very encouraging stuff, by the way, but then again, you're not expecting it to be because God told Hosea to marry a prostitute because his people are prostituting themselves. It was a marriage object lesson for real life. So you would expect God not to be happy with his people if he's going to call them a prostitute. And what they're doing is they should be faithful to God, but they're not. They're instead faithful to other things. And so they're chasing after other things. So top of the page here, uh, the first three chapters of Hosea, you can just basically say God's people are unfaithful. And God was describing that. And the next section, which ends with our, with our chapter tonight, God's people do not know him. That's like God's lawsuit. It's like these, the first one's kind of like a proclamation. And this two, three, and four of this little list here is kind of like God's lawsuits. God is laying down charges that his people don't know him. The next section from chapter six to chapter 11 is God's people are not devoted to him. And the last section, God's people are deceitful. They're actually laying sneaks. They're just, yeah. They, so none of these things you want God to say about you. Now imagine you're Israel. Life is going pretty good. Everybody seems to have everything they need and a lot of things that they want. They're kind of like they're fat and happy kind of thing. And in a time where many people weren't fat and happy, okay? And everything was working out well. Even geopolitically, they were just, they, they were good. They had made alliances and, and they were really, really sitting high. And they thought, well, that means we're really blessed because look at all that we've got. God must really like us. He must not really care that we run after these other gods too. Maybe God, maybe God just isn't looking that deeply at us because we seem to be really blessed. We're God's people. And look at all that we have. Maybe God, you know, maybe God didn't really mean it when he said, you got to only come after me. And see, and God's looking at that and saying, hold on. You're unfaithful. You don't really know me because if you knew me, you wouldn't be that way. You're not devoted to me, and you're deceitful. Boom, 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 boom. So our text tonight, that's the whole book of Hosea right there. 
And yet intermixed in the book of Hosea is God speaking to Hosea saying, love Gomer. Buy her back. So we skip this idea of there's still going to be grace somehow, some way, even as God lays down indictments and lays down lawsuits, lays these carpet bombs of theology on his people. We still get to see God's heart just peeking through, which gives hope to the gomers of the world. It gives hope for you and me as well. Tonight's going to be like that. We're going to see God in a way in which we will rarely see him. The second part of tonight, it's as if God breaks the rules of theology to communicate to his people. God, dare I say, anthropomorphizes himself, makes himself a little weak, sound a little weak, make himself sound like he doesn't really know what's going on. He's at wit's end. Could God have a wit's end? Well, that's the way he's going to portray himself tonight. It's a fascinating text. Chapter 5, verse 15 to 6, 3. We have our first section, the hopeful prophet. I will return again to my place, says God, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. So we have here letter A. It's a solitary hope. The people have one shot, one shot, and that is to seek God. It's as if God's just going to pull away. They have to seek him. And you got to understand, especially as history unfolds, there's going to be 400 years between Malachi and Matthew where God is silent, where God is not speaking to his people. And then all of a sudden, the prophecy comes through with Jesus. He's like a light to the Gentiles. All of a sudden, you know, the prophecy coming through, the, it's a Galilee of the Gentiles. All of a sudden, light is going to dawn. Here it is. All of a sudden, God speaks again. Well, we still get to go back, and the northern tribes are going to be conquered, and then Judah's going to be conquered, and then everyone's going to be taken off into exile. Then what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And various books are going to unfold, and then final prophecies of the Old Testament are going to unfold, and then silence. It's like the ultimate between the two testaments, mic drop, just silence. There's a solitary hope for Israel. And that is if they seek God. So, aka, yes, make your right. Repent. That's their solitary hope. They're going this direction to themselves. Nope. Back to God. We got to continue here. This is fascinating. Come, let us return to the Lord. I put it in your notes. This is Hosea. This is the prophet Hosea interceding for his people. It's kind of like when you're telling the kids, eat your vegetables. I mean, they're good. Yum, yum, yum. It's like he's giving them an example here. Hey, I'm going to say this. I'm going to prophesy this. I'm going to call this out. Do this. Join me. This is what we need to do in the face of all the muck and crap we're giving God. This is our answer. This is it. Hosea intercedes for the people and is saying, come on, come on. He says, come on, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Remember, the end of last chapter, he's that lion. 
and lions tear their prey. He's torn us that he may heal us. Oh, snap. That's a different perspective. You who are going through something right now, who have gone through hardships, it feels like God is tearing. It feels like God hurts. It feels like God doesn't know what's going on, but just wait. Sometimes in God's purposes and plan, there's a tearing down before he builds back up. That's what Jose is praying for here. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Huh. Don't think too much about verse 2. You are going to want to, but don't do it. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. <gasps> what? Is that it? Is that Easter? Is that Jesus was is the third day? The, the New Testament talks about it a couple times, and on the third day he rose again. What is that it? No, it would be quite a stretch to read the Messiah into these verses. I don't even think I could. If you put a gun to my head and say, you know what, um, you got to read the Messiah in these verses, I don't think I even could. It'd be taken completely out of context. He's going to strike us down, then he will bind us up. The context here is repent, people, repent. Jesus the Messiah didn't need to repent. So it really doesn't go there. So don't go there. It, it, it doesn't fit theologically with the text here. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. He's just using timeline here, okay? I'm, it's like a, soul, a wounded soldier on the battlefield that's been struck down, and it's going to be bound up again, okay? Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us in, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Your blue items here. We have here a solitary hope, the hopeful prophet. If Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, I like that Hosea has hope here. Wasn't that nice? In the midst of all that, Hosea is like, come on, come on, join me, people. Let's go. We can turn back to God. God's saying, your only hope is to turn back to me. And Hosea is like, yes, let's go, let's go, let's go. God's sovereign work in revival. How does revival ever start? It's like Mick said, kind of like a surgeon having to cut you up to treat you. Yeah, God's got to break a lot of things down. And then God's got to build a lot of things back up. Only until that happens. Revival is never going to come. Until you're humbled and broken. And that's the next thing. The great hope of the broken, humble, repentant person. Until you are broken at your own sinfulness repenting, you have no hope. Zero. Or at least you don't have hope in God, the centered in God. Your hope is humanistic, it's centered in you, or maybe in somebody else, a relationship, maybe a job, maybe your bank account, maybe this or that. No, God is sovereignly at work in revival. Every single part about revival is sovereignly the act of God. I mean, we understand theologically speaking that Jesus says all the Father gives to me, draws unto me, are going to come. It's like you're not going to turn back to God unless God's doing it. Unless God is putting in your heart the desire to turn, you will never choose yourself. Or excuse me, you will never choose God. You will always choose yourself. That's Ephesians chapter 2. You're dead in your sins. You're not in the ICU ward in your sins. You're dead. It's done. You're not making any choices. 
That's right. Only if we die to ourselves can we be born again. That's right. Thank you. Good job, Sandy. Yeah, that's the idea of here. It's verse three. Let's read verse three again. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. May verse three be you. Oh, may it be you. Press on to know the Lord. Go to the top of the page. Look at God's indictment. You're unfaithful. You don't know me. That's this text tonight, ending in 6 verse 6. God's like, you don't know me. Hosea's like, let us make that every effort. Let us press on. Yeah, that same idea we will see with Paul. Pressing on to the goal. I've not yet attained it, but I'm pressing on. And I could be found in him. To know Christ. It's like the same idea. He got it from Hosea. Press on to know the Lord. Your greatest missions in life. Know God. My brothers and sisters, that's why you're in Masterclass Theology. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Because we're going through God's word. The only way to know God is to read his word. That's it. Everything goes back to his written word that he has given and has, has been preserved for us to read. Let us press on. That's great. That, by the way, is your meaning of life. That's it. Press on to know the Lord. If only the Pharisees had done that. They knew about the Lord. It was me facing the seminary trap. Learning about God, not getting to know God. Don't do that. Come on, press on to know the Lord. That means you're not going to just take the heart of the matter. You're going to look at the spirit of the matter as well. Yeah, great comment, Mick. To know is not merely a mental exercise or intellectual ascent, but knowing God relationally, intimately. Yeah, this isn't press on to accumulate more knowledge about God. You actually can know God. He created you to be in a relationship with him. So why aren't you? Well, I am in a relationship with God. Is that your main thing? How could anything be more important than that? If you really think about the two people involved in that relationship, I mean, really think about it. I'm not asking you to think of yourself as lesser than you are, but just imagine God. He wants a relationship with you, and now all of a sudden you've got something more important? Seriously? I don't think so. That's the hopeful prophet. Verses four to six, we have the, yeah, good, good comment. Yeah, it's not about winning Bible trivia. Good job, Mick. Daniel texted in. God created us in his likeness, in his image, that we might be made as his family. Nice. The frustrated parent. Four to six. I don't know. I, I, I'm a dad. I've said this. If, you have, if you've had children in your life and you've had to watch over them or babysit or if you're a teacher or whatnot, what, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? In fact, God uses the vocative sense, the oh, the oh, Ephraim. Oh, what, what shall I do with you? 
what shall I do with you, O Judah? He uses both the north and the south. It's like, it's God is like, a, he's a wit's end here. Your love is like a morning cloud. Oh, isn't that nice? Wasn't that sweet, God? Eh. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Oh, yeah. You know, when you go outside and the grass is wet, and then you go out, you, you know, you go outside a couple hours later and the grass is not wet anymore. Like that dew that's all nice. And, you know, I made the mistake one day of taking the garbage out early in, in the morning and, and with my socks on. And my socks were all, you know, wet and squishy when I came in. Like, oh, geez, you know, thanks. It had not rained. It was just the dew. You know, had I gone just, you know, 20 minutes later, it would have been dry as a bone kind of thing. So that, that morning dew goes away. That's the image God's using for your love. Ouch! Man, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Oh. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Those of you who are New Testament people, you know that comes up, don't you? Those of you who have scanned this worksheet, you know it's coming up, don't you? I desire, in fact, you might read mercy and not sacrifice. The word chesed, it, says, it does mean mercy, kind of, thy loving kindness is better than life, that loving kindness, okay? It's like that idea of, but there's a steadfastness to it. So I like the translation here, a steadfast love, like a come what may kind of love, okay? So, for I desire steadfast love. And remember, love to God is covenant love. This isn't a sappy, like you're writing God's last name after your first name kind of love. This isn't the teenager puppy dog love. This is covenant love. This is Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This is a covenant term. You are going to be covenantally faithful. That's love to God. So when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, it isn't sappy. It's faithfulness. That's what love is to God. A steadfast love. That's better than sacrifice. God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants steadfast love. As the, uh, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's like all these outward things are great. But do you know God? Are you fully, fully bought in, committed to God? That's what God wants. That's the kind of love that's faithful that keeps Gomer with Hosea instead of Gomer running after do her thing. That's what God wants. That's the kind of love that buys Gomer back when she runs out on you. That's the kind of love that shows mercy, grace that doesn't make sense. That's the kind of love that trusts the God faithfully, even though you can't see him. Yeah. That's what God wants. What has God seen? He's seen the fact that they're just wishy-washy. Not even that. They're not consistent. They're like the morning dew. They're just, you know, it's gone. They talk awful big words and they don't come through. God's tired of it. God has seen them. He's seen the kind of commitment level they have. What has God done? He's hewn them. It's almost like he's got an axe by the prophets. 
every prophet just bringing fire, every prophet coming at them and saying, turn back to God, turn back, enough, enough, enough. And they kill the prophets, don't they? Turn back. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Yeah, that's being broken, isn't it? God seeing through your garbage and breaking you down through his word. Yeah, that's the best kind of breaking down. You're sorrowful because of your brokenness, because of your sin. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not talking about people who are going to funerals. He's talking about people who are weeping at their sinfulness. Do you mourn the state you're in? Where have you gone? What you have become? That's really the gist of it. Yes, people who are mourning, it's, it's okay, you're going to be comforted by God. Praise be to God of all comfort. I get it, Corinthians. But the general sense of it is, 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 is who is he speaking to? He's speaking to people who need to get their act together, who needs to realize that they need to deny themselves, that they need to go back to God. They need to turn. Mourn the state they're at. That's what God has done. His judgment is shining forth as the light. Whew. God judges. All of a sudden you see, okay, that shows me the direction I should go now because that's what God expects. My path is a little darker, but God has shown forth. Now I see. Now I see. <sighs> For I desire steadfast love. That's what God wants. What has God seen? What has God done? What does God want? He wants that. That's what God wants for you, from you. He wants you to be faithful to him. He wants you to actually follow through in and your outer person. But beginning with your inner person, God wants you to mean it and to keep meaning it. The last thing God wants of you is for you to be like the do, the cheesy rhyme. The morning dew that just goes away, is that you? You talk big. How about you, big guy, is that you? Sure it was. I call it the camp high. What's the camp high? You say that quickly, it sounds like a toast in Japan. Kampai, ah, kampai, ah, kampai. No. The camp high. What's the camp high? You send a kid to camp, a Bible camp. Great week of camp. I'll just speak about camps I've gone to. I won't speak about the camps that, that, that are out there now. I'm just gonna speak about my history. You go to camp, you see camp. In fact, I used to be a camp counselor, okay? And it was fun. I got to I got to dust off some fun voices and I got to be fun characters and you know people loved me it was fun to be around me and it's, I could just be crazy and just do things and and yeah it was a good good training for me to be a daddy and learn a bunch of fun voices and what that kind of stuff but I saw kids especially kids I was a youth pastor at the time I saw kids in my own youth group they were making professions of faith they were just really rah rah for Jesus by the end of the week they were like oh yes. I am sold out. And then they go home. 
and the pressures of this life taken and they go with their friends and all of a sudden I'm getting calls about them being on uh, sampling more drugs again. They're doing this again. And I'm getting calls from their parents. Hey, could you go pick up my kid? He's, he's off doing. And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy just made a big decision. This guy, and I just began to see not all moments like that are like that. But I've seen it again and again. The camp, hi. That person was like what God's talking about here. The dude. It's not there after a while. And yeah, it's like the parable of the soils. You know, the pressures of this world, the thorns come up, the seed starts off really well. And I'm not judging that kid. I'm just looking at the fruit. And I was that kid's youth pastor. Those kids, they're youth pastors. And I watched them make those decisions and I rejoiced with them. A couple of them I even baptized. And I was just celebrating with them. And then I watched them again. And the bad part is, is that my life has been that way. I was like a walking camp high. I was just a camp yesterday. Great camp. We have at the church, we own this camp. I love that camp. It's great. I've got two places on that camp that are my places. They're my quiet spots. One of those places is like the, back when you remember your, your, your computer screens, it's like the screensaver of my mind. Every time I see that, there's like a quiet place for me. The birds are chirping, the frogs are croaking, the, the rushes are in the water, and the ripples of the waves, and the, the birds are flying in and whatnot. And it's a really low part of camp, just beautiful, 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 right there on the water on a, on a bench. And just, ah, uh, got a coffee, got my book, and this, oh, this is great. That's my spot. We were there on a staff retreat, and we had a great thing planned or whatnot, but eventually at the end, it's like we have a couple hours before we got to get back on the bus. Free time. I said, oh, goody. I commandeered one of the golf carts and that was fun. I got to go all over to camp. I really loved that. But I, but I went, first of all, I went to my spot and nobody was there. And I grabbed the benches around the campfire. Nobody was. So I just grabbed one of the benches, pulled it over there to the water's edge and just went, ah. Well, God met me at the water's edge. And he worked on me at the water's edge. And I thought about the camp high at the water's edge. See, there's parts of my life that need work. It's a great prayer time at the water's edge. Then I got back in the, I got, I got back in the, the golf cart and I went to my other spot. This one's a high spot, the highest spot at camp all the way to the top. The last time I was there is looking over the canopy of tree line. And I saw a couple eagles come in, just flying. I was like, that was really cool. But I'm up there, sitting in the shade on a deck, kind of overlooking all that, this little valley. Ah, that's my other spot. And there I could read. There I began to make decisions. There I began to think, okay, God, what is it you need for me right now? What do you want for me? What are you expecting of me? God, what are things in my life that need to change? These are great prayers. What are things in my life that are, that are this text right here? You see, only the presence of a changed life verifies revival is happening. I know a lot of people. Some of them are dear friends of mine. Revival is coming. Revival is with me. It's, it's, it's with me. And yet their life isn't changing. They're not becoming more like Jesus. They're becoming more like themselves. That is not revival. 
that is your own humanistic undertaking of yourself. You're promoting you. You're not living Jesus. When revival happens, reconciliation happens. When revival happens, forgiveness happens. When revival happens, people who were like this become like this. They become closer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did post on Facebook a, a, a book I was reading. I was at the high point in that picture. Yes, I was not at the low point. I was at the high point. Indeed. I don't know where those points are in your soul, where you meet with God at your most raw and at your most genuine and real. But in those moments, you have the, your Bible open, you're reading God's word, and God goes to work on you. Only the presence of a changed life verifies revival. Let's ask some tough questions. Just looking at these things here. I wrote them on a scribbly piece of paper here. Not pretty. These questions aren't pretty either. Here we go. How consistent is your love? Now, you might take that for the people you love. Fair enough. Because love is a verb. Love isn't just some sappy thing. When you say I love you to somebody, there's more than just emotion there. I'll grant you there's emotion. But there's mm, behind that emotion. And don't kid yourself. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your... Mm. How are you going to translate that word? It's not really strength. All your strength is really just all your grunt. All your... Mm. That's what you're loving God with. All of your effort. All of your... Mm. Yeah. That's behind love. When you say you love someone through thick and thin, well, there's the thick. It's like, that's it. How consistent is your love? I'll take it out of people and go to God. I don't like the word consistent. Okay. How faithful is your love? How dependable is your love? How lasting is your love? Exactly right, Sandy. You're kind of using my own language here. Love with teeth. Yeah. How consistent is your love with God, for God? That's a terrifying question. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? But we're God's people. Yeah? Why do you think in chapter one, God, God starts having those kids being named not my people? Is that this whole people thing ain't going to fly anymore? You're not going to just claim a relationship with God and live however you're saying, well, darn well, please. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Even Judah? Aren't they the golden boys? Really? Judah? We're like the most important tribe where like David's from and we're later Jesus. I mean, seriously, Judah's going to get it too? Uh-huh. Hello, Babylon's coming. Hello, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and, and Esther, and we have the, the priest Ezekiel. Boom! It's like, they're going to get it too. Only thing surviving that is the western portion of the wall surrounding the temple, the wailing wall today. What shall I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Is that you? I don't want you chatting at me about it. I want you talking to yourself right now. Is that you? Are you like that stinking dew on the ground that a couple hours later is not there anymore? And the grass was like, well, I guess I was wet. I don't know. Yeah. 
You cannot read this chapter and ask and not ask that question. You can't do it. If you do that, you're just hiding. If you go back to our Hebrew session, the yeah, but would never ask that question. The clay would. Oh, heck yeah. The clay would be asking that question all the time. Remember the clay? Remember the three students? The clay would be all about, the clay would love these questions because it would, get, it would be put up or shut up time for the clay. All right, next question. This is, uh, I have hewn them with the prophets. I have slain them with my word. God's not some gangster rapper on the street spitting fire, slaying people with his, his bars. No, God is slaying their pride with his word. How broken are you with regards to your sin? If you're the kind of person who's a self-love kind of person, you don't understand that question. Broken? I belong to Jesus. I have the best life possible, right? Broken? What do you mean broken? Jesus said I'm supposed to have life to the fullest. Broken? What do you mean broken? How broken are you with regards to your sinfulness? This is radio silence right now. It ought to be. These questions kick the crap out of me. I can only imagine what they're doing to you as well. I'm going to drink some coffee. Sumatra blend. Here we go. Question three. This comes from uh, God's judgment bringing the light. So those people have no excuses. The light has shown. We're blind. We don't know. We don't see where we're supposed to go. Hogwash. The light has shown. Question three, what excuses do you maintain? Ooh, that's tough. Darn you, Joel. Why'd you say maintain? Because you keep feeding them, don't you? You don't understand the life I have. You don't understand what I went through. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand who I've had to say goodbye to. You don't understand what they've done to me, what they've said to me. You don't understand the muck and the mire, the depression, the anxiety, the hurt, the abuse, the shame. You don't understand. Who the heck do you think you are? What excuses do you maintain? Excuses for what? for not being steadfast with God. Life's too hard, God. Maybe you're bitter, Naomi. You did this to me, God. You did this to me, God. You brought me back empty, God. That's one step away from who the heck do you think you are, God? What excuses do you maintain Finally, oh no, sorry, I got five. This is question four. God's light. Ooh. I call this cockroach theology. You shine a light in a dark space and what happens? Those little creepy crawlies that enjoy the dark, all of a sudden they scatter away. This is John chapter three, the light, the people who are hiding from, they, they, they hate the light because light reveals. They love the darkness. They agape the darkness because in the darkness they get to hide. I'm paraphrasing John three, but that's it. This is the verdict, light has come. The light might reveal something. In fact, it does. What idols would God's light reveal in your heart? 
what idols are revealed in you. Idols? Okay, I'll ask it just a bit differently. As God's light shines on your heart and your life, what are some repentance areas you have? This question beat the tar out of me when I was sitting at camp amongst the treaties. I'm going through hardship right now in my inner person. Nobody can see it, but I'm going through it. And in that hardship, I'm selfish and I'm maintaining my selfishness inside of me at the deepest, darkest recesses of me. And I felt guilty up in the treetops. I had become my own idol, even in my brokenness. I'm thankful for that moment among the trees. As the light reveals what's your idol. What's an area you need to repent? Number five, this is the philosophical question. I wrestled with this driving home today. I was just yelling at my screen, at my windshield. People walking by in the car like, what? Is your outside more important than your inside? If you desire sacrifice more than you desire steadfastness, is your outside more important than your inside? Let that question chew on you for a bit. If your outside is more important than you desire the outward things, most of all, how people see you, most of all, maybe this would be the typical Pharisee. They were outwardly perfect, but inside they were wasting away. Their outside was more important than your inside. Can your outside be good and your inside be bad? Yes, but not in the way you think. Because if your inside is bad, as Jesus would say, what comes out of the heart is expressed, paraphrase. It might seem good, but it's not really good. Like you're really not honoring God with your outward good if your inside is not honoring God. What about if your inside is good and your outside is bad? Does that work? Let's just flip the script. This kicked my butt driving home. I'm like, is it possible? Is it possible? I kind of landed the plane on the second one. If your inside is good, but your outside is bad, both of them are hypocritical in their own way. The first one's the Pharisee hypocrisy. What's the second one? The second one is how the yeah, but becomes the clay. You see, if your inside is good and your outside is bad, you're okay. But if your inside is really good, your outside's not going to stay bad because you're going to want to live. You see, I would rather have as a counselee that second person who on the inside wants to give glory to God and the outside is not doing it. I can work with that person. That person's broken and wants to be different and wants to honor God with every part of them. The first person is rotten in the core, but their outside looks good. They don't think they need a savior. That person is really hard to work with. The second one has been me. 
Is it you? No wonder we have a frustrated parent of a God. I'm so thankful God lowered himself to speak that way. Because I need to hear God being sick and tired of these kids that he has Ephraim and Judah. Like sometimes I'm sick and tired of mine. But I'm at wit's end. Jesus number one, Jesus number two. Jesus quotes this verse twice. We'll go quickly through this. Matthew 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. He said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, assuming Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6, 6. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, to the Pharisees' understanding, God crushes sinners. And God supports the quote-unquote righteous. Eh. Remember, grace doesn't make sense. The Pharisees didn't get Jesus, did they? Jesus says, no, God transforms the sinner, and he dismisses the ones who call themselves righteous. Ah, yeah. Don't preserve the shell and lose the heart. I read that today in a commentary by one of the smartest men I've ever known. That's a D.A. Carson line, kids. Don't preserve the shell and lose the heart. By God, by God. Whoa. I escaped Trinity when I went to seminary without a Carson class. Brutal classes. I wish I had one now, but, but I escaped. Somehow he wasn't teaching at the time. Yeah, I missed his classes. But yeah. Don't preserve the shell and lose the heart. Hello, Pharisee. Matthew, two, Matthew 12, Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6 a second time, believe it or not. At that time, Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And by the way, don't focus on the hungry because Jesus isn't focused on the hungry. We want to focus on the hungry, but Jesus goes a step beyond that. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. The assumption there, because Jesus didn't tell them to knock it off, the assumption there was that Jesus was totally fine with it. Okay? That's the assumption. Because Jesus doesn't say, well, I told him not to, but I did anyway. No. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are not doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he, how he entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Like, yeah, not supposed to work on the Sabbath, except the ones in the priests who are always at work, even on the Sabbath. Are they Sabbath breakers? No. Why aren't they Sabbath breakers? Because there's something bigger than the Sabbath going on there. The temple is obviously bigger than the Sabbath. Yes. And that is exactly Jesus' point here. But something greater than even the temple is here. You think the temple is greater than the Sabbath? Well, guess what? Something's bigger than the temple. And it's here. And if you had known what this means, he quotes Hosea 6, 6, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
You see, the Pharisees say the external law is what matters. Jesus is saying, hold on here. There is something and someone even greater. The assumption is Jesus is God. So if Jesus does something on the Sabbath, if he's reinterpreting matters on the fly, oh, the heck, well, something greater than the Sabbath is here. He's God. It's his law. Dang. The superficial and hypocritical service of the self. Yeah. You've got to ask what you are. That inside-outside thing, I wanted to play with you. Is your inside more important than your outside? It should be. But don't stop there. The clay would then turn around and say, Yes, it is more important, but my inside directly affects my outside. My outside is like the fruit. The inside is like the root. That's what it is. If your outside is more important than your inside, oh, danger, danger, danger. You've got to ask that. There's a reason why Jesus tossed this verse at the Pharisees twice. Because the Pharisees are in Hosea 6. Their entire dilemma was portrayed by the apostate Ephraim and the apostate Judah, who were daring to act this way with God. And yet everything's okay on the outside. God, I can keep bringing you sacrifices, whatever that sacrifice is. It's superficial. It's hypocritical because I don't really mean it. I'm really sacrificing it to be seen. I am really on that altar, not you. I'm serving myself, not really serving you. And God in Hosea 6 was sick to the death of that crap. You've got to wrestle with that. I went from the lowest of the low to the highest of high at camp. And I wrestled. And this is my result tonight. God bless you all. This has been Big Rev Masterclass Theology, Hosea chapter six. Thanks for letting me share.